I'm sharing a family story here with you with no names to protect the guilty. There was a, a day long ago, one of the nice things about having small kids is the funny things they say and do, of course. And we had given our girls their allowance, and, you know, they'd given generously, they'd saved the required portion, and so they had that money burning a hole in their pocket, so we decided we were going to go and have lunch. We were going to splurge. Each one of us was going to spend some of our own money by lunch. So as we're going along, I'm suggesting to one of our daughters as we're considering what our options are, that she go in on the lunch purchase. So I'm up front driving, she's in the back, and there's silence. And, you know, I look back, and I know she's cogitating, she's doing the math is what's happening. She's figuring it out. And, and uh, with all the umbrage that an eight-year-old could muster, she says, Dad, you're ripping me off! I don't think that I am. <laughs> now, <clears throat> so that's a phrase in our household to this day, 30 years later, Dad, you're ripping me off. I didn't mean to, but that's what she thought. That's what she thought was going on. And of course, you know, one of the challenges that anyone faces in life, but Christians are not immune from this either, is that there will be times and circumstances or there will be issues in your life Typically, things that are in your life that you don't want or things that are not in your life that you do want. And you may pray to God about them and you may plead about these things to God and, and they may not change. And what do you do with that? And do we conclude like my daughter did that her dad who loves her, who's giving her the allowance to buy the lunch with in the first place, is ripping her off? Is that really what's going on? And is God ripping us off? when we don't get those things that we really want, that we pray about, that we say we give to him, but we run back to again and again. It's post-Christmas. Maybe we think, Lord, I didn't get what I wanted for Christmas. Or I say, you know, Lord, I'm praying. I'm sending you my texts and emails. Not hearing back from you. Mostly it's something along this line. My life is not where I wanted it to be. I'm not I, what I thought I would be. My life's not headed in the direction that I wanted it to that I assumed it would but there's some sort of disappointment that we struggle with and there is that temptation is God ripping me off interesting uh, we're in the 45th message in the heroes and villains series this morning and to be clear again I've said this over and over I'll say it again this morning we're saying that these biblical heroes they display Christ-like faithfulness some element of the faithfulness that's an indication of Christ. What does Christ's life look like? And we've tried to be very careful that we're saying we are not trying to be religious, that Christians are new creations by virtue of rebirth, that we are something and someone we weren't before, faith in Christ, ushered us into God's family. So Christ's life is in us, and what we want to do as believers is liberate, give more and more room and leeway to the life of Christ that is ours now. And that is characterized throughout Scripture as being faithful. So we want to liberate the life of Christ within us. We don't want to jump through religious hoops. We don't say, this is what he did, this is what I did. We don't look at this person and say, I'll be just like them. No, God's work in you and me is to transform us into the very image of Christ, and he's given us his life. So that's really what this is all about. It starts with faith. 
we're going to look at a couple this morning that lived most of their life without the thing that they were praying for. And for them, perhaps in ways that some of you can appreciate and probably most of us can't, <clears throat> there would have been a hole at the middle of their existence. And so what did life look like? What did faithfulness in the image of Christ look like for them living life without something that they really, really wanted? We're going to be looking in Luke 1 today at the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And guys, as we do this, I want to detach this in a sense from the Christmas narrative. Now, we know they're in the Bible because they're part of the Christmas narrative. And if you read about Zechariah and Elizabeth, that's usually the association. And, and that's fine. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, and they're both miracle births. But, but my focus this morning is this. It's their life up to the point where that which they wanted was given, and it was far, far later than they'd ever imagined. They'd given up hope of what they wanted, children. So we're not talking about they get John the Baptist at the end of their life. We're talking about their life up to the point that we read about this morning. So that's our focus. Last December, last month, last year, 2019, we finished the Old Testament section of the heroes and villains. So we're starting appropriately at the beginning of the new year in the New Testament. Yawns are okay. If you yawn, it's okay. If, if your eyes close and your head bows, I'll throw something at you, okay? We're all good. There's a yawn going on up front. We're all good. I yawn. Uh, anyway, we've got 22 messages left in the series, 66 total. So 15 heroes, 7 villains left. And then in August, Lord willing, when we wind this down, uh, we'll conclude with Jesus again himself. We started with God. We'll end with Jesus on that. The main point is this. Uh, sometimes faithfulness in the image of Christ means quiet daily faithfulness without the benefit of seeing hopes and dreams fulfilled. That is, Christians who know the Lord, who are saved, who are going to heaven, still living with some sense of, I don't have something I thought I would. I, my life doesn't have something that's not characterized by something I really, really wanted. Is God ripping me off? What does it look like? And this will usually be true of all of us in one way or another, to one degree or another, about one subject or topic or another. But what does faithfulness for you and I look like in the midst of disappointment? Especially if we're asking God for something that he could easily give us, and maybe he's giving a bunch of other people around us and he's not giving us. And there's that whole temptation to think God is ripping me off. It's an impossibility, by the way, but it's something that we struggle with nonetheless. We're looking at a timeline, too. I hope you have a study sheet. I'm not going to go over this much just to say your study sheet has a bunch of the points, sort of milestones that are part of the 400 silent year period. Remember, Malachi is the last book in the English Old Testament. Chronologically, it's the last also in the Old Testament. But about 400 B.C., and we're picking up our story at about 4 B.C. when John's story and Jesus' story come into play. I will just mention this. The Romans are ruling the Middle East. They're ruling over Israel at this point. King Herod is ruling Israel. Wicked, wicked King Herod is ruling Israel. The Sadducees run the temple. They're the wealthy elite, if you will, of the religious group. Pharisees run more of the synagogues. And while they'd started well, 
By this point, of course, when the Gospels begin, the Pharisees have become a very, very hyper-religious, hyper-legalistic sect, not the way they started. Uh, our story is going to take place on the Temple Mount, and this is a pretty good representation of what we think Herod's temple would have looked like, the temple that Jesus and the disciples knew. So this is looking above and down from the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, and you can see to your lower left that little wall was the Soreg, and that was the wall that Gentiles could not pass. And there were signs, literally archaeologists have a sign from this wall that says Gentiles passed this point on penalty of death. The court of Israel, the court of the women, and then when you went in where the large menorah were, those would come in there to offer sacrifices. When you get up closer to the temple itself, the tallest segment there, of course, that's where the priests would offer the sacrifices. The altar burnt offering is there. I'll show you cut away in a second. The big brown building on the northwest corner is the Antonia Fortress, and that's the Romans had that. That's probably the place where in the, the story in Acts where the Roman soldiers came down and rescued Paul would probably have been at that portion of the Temple Mount. And then our story, you can see in this cutaway, when you went into the temple itself, the temple proper, that first area was called the holy place. It's all gold. The walls have images of fruits and trees. The, the altar of incense is there, and that's why Zechariah will be there, of course, in our story. There was a, a table that had the showbread would have been presented on that, and then there was the menorah that provided the light in that area as well. And the altar of incense was right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy or holy of places where the Ark of the Covenant was located. So that's where we're going to be. If you have your Bible, we're in Luke 1, 5 through 25. Use the Pew Bible. This is page 855. Guys, I'll read the text and I'll interject for clarity or a little additional information in a couple places. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, his name appropriately means God remembers, he was of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so they're both from the priestly line. Her name was Elizabeth, uh, which means God is my oath, or something pretty close to that. Uh, First Chronicles 24 tells us that the priesthood had been divided into 24 different lines. And so each division, he's in the division of Abijah, they would serve one week two times a year. So they were just part of a rotation, and this was his rotation. Verse 8 says, While he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And let me pause again just to say, you know, we, we talk about God being sovereign. There are no accidents. There's no coincidences for a Christian God is sovereign over all things. He's working everything in your life and mine after his own purposes, whether we see that in the moment or not. Now, it says by lot. You know, if you took dice and you threw them and you say, we don't know what's going to come up. Well, that's the thought here. He's chosen by random or by chance. But Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He didn't get to do this. Priests went in and offered the incense on that little altar once in their life. And he had never done this before because God didn't want him in before this day. So as we think about our own life and we think something hasn't happened, I'm waiting on something, there's no accidents. God is sovereignly at work. 
sometimes to keep us from things, other times to push us forward in ways we don't know the benefit of. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. He's afraid anyway. He's before the Ark of the Covenant is just on the other side of that curtain. He starts afraid. And then this guy appears out of nowhere. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll call his name John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. That means he's a Nazarite. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you remember from December, that's uh, almost a direct quote out of Malachi 4. And in Malachi, it's Yahweh that, that the the precursor to the Lord appearing is Yahweh himself. So we know that this is Jesus, this is God incarnate that John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zach says, it's a wild claim. How's it, how am I going to know? The angel says, well, you won't be able to speak. That's how you'll know. The people were waiting. They're wondering what's going on. He's delayed. He came out. He was unable to speak. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home, verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So as we're looking at this, remember, we're not thinking of them so much as the parents, the miracle parents of John the Baptist, but their life up to this point from what we're told in this passage. So normally part of the Christmas story today, sort of forget the Christmas story, and we're going to look at what happened before then. Look at verses 7 and 18. First, it says they were both advanced in years, just descriptively, and then Zechariah says in verse 18, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. If you think of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, a couple that's too old to have kids, they know it and everyone else knows it. That's the picture here, same picture. And then you get to verse 13, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, call his name John. You remember in Sarah's case, they call Isaac Isaac because it's laughter. Now, that could be the laughter of incredulity. You know, I'm how old? I'm 90 and I'm having a baby. Who'd have thunk? But something like that. And that's what's going to happen to Elizabeth as well. But think of this for just a minute. So the angel says your prayer has been heard. Now, they're old. The text tells us they're old, they're advancing years. They're too old to have kids. There's no question about this. How long ago do you think they quit praying for a son or children? 
it had probably been at least years and it may have been decades. These are prayers that hadn't been uttered in a long time. And now you show up and say that prayer that we haven't prayed for a long, long time, now it's coming to pass. They had probably given up on child, on having any children a long time earlier, which means, and this is the point, they are past the hope or the expectation of children. But it's clearly, it was their hope and their expectation. And we'll talk more about that. And so what God says about them becomes even more pointed because they lived all that life without something they really wanted, with a hole, if you will, in the middle of their desires. And I want to pause here for just a second. You know, Scripture without, without application is uh, not a good thing. We want to make this personal. So as we proceed, just ruminate for a moment in your own mind. Usually these things aren't hard to figure out. What are my unfulfilled hopes or desires or dreams? They could be for things very practical, like a certain kind of education or career or level of career. could be marriage. Some of us really want to get married, and we're not could be having children. Uh, we want children. Or we've gone and wish we didn't. That's, that's harder to, to deal with, maybe. Standard of living health. But you get the picture. This would be individual for each of us. Even within a family or a couple, it might be different. But, but what are those things that we've talked to the Lord about? Lord, I want, or I wish you'd take away. What are those things that are disappointments, hard things for us to bear in life, and let's make this practical as we think about those things personally as we work through. So, life has stages, and they went through stages of life. And you know, when you, you leave a stage of life, you leave the things attendant on that as well. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have wed as a young couple, they would have looked forward to their life together, they would have looked forward to sex and children. And guys, in the New Testament era, the view of children, especially for Jews, is not what's typical of our culture today. They wanted kids. If they got pregnant on their honeymoon, that was a good thing because children were valued and they were seen specifically as blessings in ways, again, that I just don't think even for evangelicals is true today. So they get married. They have the normal expectation. But then think of this. <coughs> Excuse me. They have sex, the weeks and the months start rolling by, and they're waiting for Liz to feel sick or to start looking poochy, and it doesn't happen. And you know the way these things kind of creep up. As the days and the weeks and the months go by, they start having questions. They may not have even said it to each other. They may not even uttered it to themselves because they don't even want to recognize it as a possibility. I'm not pregnant, and I was sure I would be by this time. What's going on? But you know, as months turned into years, that realization comes up, doesn't it? And they thought, why am I not pregnant? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with him? What have we done wrong? Or is God ripping us off? Is God doing us wrong? Because we don't have kids and we want kids and we can't seem to get them. You know, probably, too, parents would have asked them about this, wouldn't they? Because their parents want grandkids. Where are the grandkids? Are you, what do you guys, do you not know how this works? You know, the parents would have asked. 
friends and other relatives would have asked too. Don't you love it when someone asks you about something you can do nothing about? That, that would have just made it worse, wouldn't it? The unfulfilled desire for children, guys, it's not only a challenge then in their lives, it remains one of the, the most emotionally challenging situations couples will face. Uh, Scott Ray is a professor of ethics and theology in Southern California. His wife struggled with infertility and then later with life-threatening cancer. So her husband asks her one day, Honey, which was harder for you, infertility or cancer? Now just think about that, having kids or dying, having kids or dying. She says there's no comparison. Infertility was far more difficult than cancer and the thought of death. Infertility, far more difficult. She said there's no comparison. And that's what Elizabeth would have been facing, that sense that I can't have kids and there's nothing I can do about it. By the way, we want to be careful when we're assuming why someone else isn't married, don't we? Or isn't pregnant or isn't having kids or isn't living life that we thought they should be or we would do it this way. We want to be very careful about assumptions. So, so think of this. So they've already got a huge disappointment they're living with. And it probably took them years to sort of come to a conclusion, we're just not going to have kids. God's not giving us kids. That's just the way it's going to be. But also, verse 25 tells us this. Elizabeth says, because she's pregnant, God has taken away my reproach among people. Now let that sink in for a minute. God has taken away my reproach among the people of Israel, my relatives and my friends. Reproach is a strong word. It means blameworthiness, to be cursed, to be mocked. It's a strong word. So Elizabeth felt a sense of embarrassment or blameworthiness for her inability to have children for years and for decades such that it became part of the fabric of her life. Wherever she went, whatever was going on, there was that inner voice saying, I'm, I'm not what I should be, and I haven't had children, and I'm embarrassed, and, and I feel ashamed. I'm in Israel, and I've been given no children. So Liz and Zach, like most of us, they just wanted what almost every other couple had. They just wanted kids. Is that too much to ask for? So... I'm sure they asked themselves, and guys, I think for them especially it was an appropriate question to ask, did we do something wrong that we don't have kids? We tend not to ask those questions today, which is fine, I think, in the time we live in. But put yourself when and where they lived. They live under the covenant of Moses. And what did the covenant say? If and when you are faithful, I will bless you. And what will I bless you with? I'll bless you with children. I'll bless you with health and wealth. And they're trying to live right, and they don't have it. Were they morally culpable? I'm sure they asked that. The text tells us they're not. Look at verse 6 again. It says they're blameless. They're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So we know whatever was going on, we know something they didn't right? When they're living this out, they don't know that's God's viewpoint. We know it's not because something they've done wrong that they don't have kids. 
But they would have been asking themselves that, and others would have been asking the same thing. Scripture doesn't tell us anything else about their lives but this. And this is why I think this is poignantly so significant. In the midst of hopes delayed, deferred, and dying or dead, as day followed day and year year, this noble couple lived faithfully before God, the same God who had not given them the thing they wanted most. And they did this so fully that God's only comment on them is they were righteous and they were blameless. Think about Job for a minute. Even in the midst of his suffering, God would point to Job and and say to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. He's blameless. That same kind of description is given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. God could point down from heaven and say, they please me. They are blameless. That took some doing on their part, didn't it? What did faithfulness for them look like? So I'm reading in, and so just bear with me. So I know, we know, when they lived and where they lived. And so because they were faithful to the covenant, we can imagine some things that would have been true for them as they lived their life of disappointment and faithfulness. So Zechariah, we know, served in Jerusalem at the temple during his rotations two times a year. That's only two weeks. He lives, their home is in the hills of Judea, verse 39 tells us. So he's normally at home. And these guys all would have had either a trade or they would have been shepherds, something farmers, something along that line. So he would have just lived a normal life like everybody else there in the hills of Judah. And Elizabeth would have been a homemaker. You know, and she's cooking meals and she's cleaning house and she's visiting with friends and neighbors, normal life, probably like most of us live. They would have observed the feasts of Israel. They would have been in Jerusalem for the three mandatory feasts for sure. And think of this, because he's a priest, when the festivals, the big ones, especially the spring and the fall came, it's likely that it was all hands on deck, that Elizabeth would have been celebrating these feasts either on her own or with friends or relatives because they they need extra hands for the offerings that are being made with all the folks in town. They would have tithed. They listened to scripture. They sang psalms in their synagogue and temple. We would say they went to church. They prayed. They would have prayed together. They would have prayed separately as well. They would have gone to market, gone to the grocery store, paid bills, celebrated with relatives at weddings and births and circumcisions, probably a pang for them with those births and circumcisions. And they also would have mourned with those same relatives at funerals. Think of this. They would have been sexually intimate at first with the excitement of newlyweds. You're just glad to be together, right? You're you're engaged. The one thing you don't have is physical relationships. So newlyweds, great, here it is. But then after that, they're being intimate with the hopes of becoming parents. You know, there's purpose now. Well, I think this is the right time of the month. I think maybe this time. You know, but later, you know, past all that, they'd have been intimate just for the comfort and the fellowship that you share with your spouse with no thought that we're going to get children out of this. But you see, faithfulness for them, what it looked like, would have been true for most of us, the normal, ordinary things of life, sort of with a hole in the middle. I think, Zechariah and Elizabeth are better models of faithfulness for most of us than Moses, the lawgiver, though we've looked at him, than Joshua, who led people into the land of promise, 
than people like King David or the prophet Daniel or other of the heavyweights, the giants of the faith. We We don't think of these folks as giants of the faith, but what they did, their kind of faithfulness applies, I think, in spades to most of us. Because life won't turn out the way we thought, certainly not in all its categories. And all of us will live with elements of disappointment and hurt and pain and frustration. Things that we know, if God wanted to, he could fix with a look, with a word, with a breath. And he doesn't. And what do we do with that? Is God ripping us off? Most of us need the quiet hearers of the faith for encouragement more than the giants. Now, I think it's easy to get confused, um, especially if you look around. If I say God gave uh, my friend what I wanted, <laughs> does God love them more than me? Uh, is, it, is it possible that God would give me something that I know is a good thing? Is that possible? <laughs> And if it is possible, is that okay? Is it okay if God gives me something I don't want? Or is it okay if God doesn't give me something that I, that I really want? And of course, this would have been the key questions for them too, wouldn't it? What did they do with that? And again, I'm reading in a little bit here, but we'll look, I think, at some of the things they held true and, and held on to and believed. Listen to this, though. This is a quote. Uh, actually, Larry mentioned this same author in Sunday school earlier this morning, Paul David Tripp, he's a well-known pastor, speaker, and author. He's very quotable. Uh, he said this. Now, his, the particular here is about pastors, but the, the topic applies to all of us equally. He said this. I've talked with many pastors whose real struggle isn't first with the hardship of ministry, the lack of appreciation and involvement of people, or difficulties with fellow leaders. And By the way, I'd say neither I nor any of the other elders here feel like we've got any of these challenges, I think. He said, no, the real struggle they're having, one that is very hard for a pastor to admit, is with God. What has caused the ministry to become hard and burdensome is disappointment and anger at God. And that's the challenge. And if we harbor that thought, it's impossible for us to be faithful We don't even trust the God that we'd say we're trying to be faithful to. So how did Zach and Liz avoid that? How did they avoid caving to the temptation, God's ripping me off. He's not fair. He's not good. He's not loving. And again, I'm reading in, but I think, let me just offer these as some suggestions. I think they knew that God was God and they weren't. And I think they knew some truths from Scripture. Now remember, in their day, especially for Zechariah, but I suspect Elizabeth as well, they would have known by heart, they would have memorized much of what we call the Old Testament. That was just their Bible. They probably sang Psalm 103. This is, by the way, a psalm that Mark taught on, I guess it's last year now. Bless the Lord, bless Yahweh, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, And you could just stop with the first one, who forgives all your iniquity. You know, when they went into Jerusalem and see the smoke going up from the temple, sins are being expiated. Sins are being covered or there's no animal sacrifice and there's nothing on the altar and there's no smoke going up. It's a sin issue. And the first thing that they bless the Lord for is that their iniquity has been forgiven. 
Nothing, we don't even have to go from there. We can just stop right there. God has forgiven my sin. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And guys, even for them or for us, whatever our disappointments are, we have been so blessed by God, life and breath and seasons and food and water and homes and shelter. I mean, it's ridiculous. God's forgiven me my sins and he's given me all this crazy good stuff in life. I can't complain, shouldn't complain, about anything. And they didn't. I think they also knew Deuteronomy 6.4 wasn't just a command. It was, in fact, the way to life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's not just a command. It's not just something we should do. That is life. To know and love God is life itself. They understood that whether God answered their prayer, He was God. Yahweh was God, and not something else. They weren't, and nothing else was. Psalm 96, 5, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but Yahweh, the Lord, made the heavens. They know Yahweh's God. In this sense, this is liberating. I've got no other option because I know who God is. I've got no other place to go because I know He's God. You know, I wonder if they meditated on Job also. Almost backwards, but a similar, similar element. So Job had all the stuff and all the kids. <laughs> and then it was all taken away. I mean, their pang is because they didn't have kids. Job had them all, and then they were all gone. I wonder if this was their life verse, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. It, whatever God does in my life, cause or allow Though he slays me, he's my only hope. Or maybe Job 23, 10, he knows the way that I take when he's tried me, I shall come out as gold. God knows what he's doing. My confidence is not in myself or my hopes, but in God himself. If faithfulness for you and me is an option that we exercise when God ple uh, pleases us, then we're not faithful at all. It's just a quid pro quo. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. If you please me, then I'll please you. But that's not faithfulness. It's not faithfulness at all. Uh, think of this. Um, uh, Jesus came in the incarnation. You know, think of Philippians 2. He leaves the courts of heaven. He takes on our humanity, and he steps down as a servant and the lowest of servants, lowest of criminals, crucified on a cross. Uh, you know, the physical pain of, is one thing, of course, but the emotional separation when Jesus calls from the cross, uh, why have you forsaken me? He's experienced something none of us can and or will ever experience, both because of his unique person uh, and because he was cut off from the Father in a way we've, we've never experienced and thankfully won't ever experience. But for all that, he still has not come into the fullness of the fruit of his work, has he? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he has not collected his bride to himself you know what I'm saying? That he paid for the church. His bride is not with him yet. He's done all the faithfulness, and he still hasn't got what he paid for. Is the father ripping him off? Of course he's not. Faithfulness in the image of Christ for us usually means a quiet determination to please God no matter the circumstances because he's God. Because he is God. 
because he's worthy of all our lives, of every moment of our life, of every aspect of our life, because he is by faith in his son, our father. Talking to Bob earlier this morning, uh, one of the things that I try and remind myself of when I've blown it again and again in the same way is how I felt towards my daughters when they were little. If they came up and they said, Dad, I've blown it again, I've got nothing but love for my daughters. And my Father in heaven has nothing but love for me as often as I blow it because that's the relationship I'm in with Him because He's my Father and He loves me because Jesus is my Savior. Think of this. And guys, it's hard for us to put ourselves in these shoes. We are so, thankfully, blessed we are hedged like Job here. We have been historically hedged in. If you're a Christian in Nigeria right now, life doesn't look near as bright as it does for us on this level, on the human level, or in China or North Korea or other parts of the world. But no matter how desperate or depressing or hopeless a life a Christian seemed or appeared to live, what do we look forward to? <laughs> we bask in the presence of Jesus' glory. We drink, Psalm 36 says, from the rivers of delight. Your future is to drink from the river of delight. Psalm 16, you're going to pleasures and joy forever. This is a good day. Absolutely. If God did nothing for us in the sense that we think is positive or good in this life, and you get heaven, that's a pretty good life. Pretty good day. Uh, put this in a frame of reference for us again as we close down. What hope do we need to give to God? What, what do we need to say to God? Lord, I wanted a, I don't have it. I give it to you. If you ever give it to me, thank you. If you don't, because of your wisdom and your goodness towards me, thank you too. What hope do we need to give to God? What desires may have become an idol in our life. And guys, what you'll find on this level is idols usually creep up on us. We say, you know, it'd be nice to have. Oh, I'd like that. And then it's, man, it, you know, I, I, re I really want that. And then I really need that. Idols creep up on us. Uh, what has become something so that it's marginalized my relationship with God? I'm not happy with God as God. This is huge for me what truth about God or God's character do I need to embrace, think about, meditate, memorize to displace the lie that God is or ever could be less than fully good and loving to me, that God always has my best in mind? What from Scripture, what truth about God and his character do I need to meditate on? And this is what you'll see. If you have an area in your life that you realize biblically is deficient, focus on the truth. We don't just say, I'm in sin, I don't get this, this. We displace it with the truth, and we do that by we read our Bible, we memorize our Bible, we meditate in our Bible, but we do so on those particular topics that speak to the element of God we need to know more intimately, more truly for ourselves. What is true about God? What element of his character do I need to embrace for myself? God is good and he's always good and he's nothing but good. Some element of his character, his nature. For me, 
Zacharias and Elizabeth are key examples in the Bible for most of us. They're some of the best examples in the Bible because they lived quiet lives of faithfulness. Their names weren't emblazoned on the pages of Scripture. They're sort of a note because of the son they had. But they are one of the key examples, I think, in all the Bible of a life of Christ-like faithfulness without God giving them everything they wanted. They got John at the end of their life beyond all expectation, and that's what impresses me the most. Well, let me pray and rise with me, if you would, and we'll, we'll close here on Habakkuk in just a second. Father, you are God, and there is no other. We embrace your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, the one who saves us from our sins and gives us eternal life such that we will never perish. Lord, would you help us in humility and in truth bow to you and say that you are God and you are worthy of all that we are and all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's read Habakkuk 3 together, would you? Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation.